it's Christmas. And my wife got me a zapper. It's just my prop, so I'll use it a little bit later. Welcome, everyone. It's good to have you here. The hero of our story is Jesus Christ, and so we're glad to be in his presence, to hear what he has to say to us today. And uh, yeah, I just love those songs we sang. They just lean so well into it. Uh, so today we're looking at the theme, uh, continuing in the book of Exodus, on the covenant restoration, and five stages to having a relationship with this great and awesome God. Let me start with a story. Um, just to congratulate Di, uh, Clive's celebrating a birthday today, 84. Happy birthday to Clive. Clive is in the facility in Deep River. So just convey your greetings to uh, Di to take back to Clive. And so lovely to see some faces I haven't seen in a while. So I just want to say it's lovely to see you. As I was Turning my head around, I saw some of you here today, so great to have you with us. So, yeah, let me start with a little story. Um, yeah, I've got to look at the time. Sorry, just watch that. Good. Good. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to start with a story of two kids and their mothers whom are having a philosophical discussion. And uh, I'm going to use my nephew and niece. They are a set of twins, so Jamie and Kim. In the absentia, I'm using their names today. So, Jamie asks Kim, do you believe in life after delivery? And Kim replied, why, of course. There must be something after delivery. Maybe we are here to prepare ourselves for what will be later. Nonsense, says Jamie. There is no life after delivery. What kind of life will that be? Kim said, I don't know but there will be more light than in here. Maybe we'll walk with our legs and eat with our mouths. Maybe we will have other senses that we don't understand now. Then Jamie replied, that's absurd. Walking is impossible. And eating with our mouths, ridiculous. The umbilical cord supplies nutrition and everything we need. But the umbilical cord is so short. So life after delivery is to be logically excluded. Kim insisted, well, I think there is something, and maybe it's different than it is here. Maybe we won't need the physical cord anymore. Jamie replied, nonsense. And moreover, if there is life, then why has no one ever come back from over there to tell us? about this. That's laughable. Well, I know, said Kim, but certainly we'll meet mother and she will take care of us. Jamie replied, mother, you actually believe in mother? That's laughable. If mother exists, then where is she now? The second said, she is all around us. We are surrounded by her. We are of her. It is in her that we live. Without her, this world would not and could not exist. Well, I don't know, said Kim, but certainly I know it's going to be good out there. Jamie replied, well, I don't see her. She, she is only a figment of your imagination. So it's only logical 
that she doesn't exist. To which Kim replied, sometimes when you're in silence and you focus and you really listen, you can perceive her presence and you can hear her loving voice calling down from above. Now these two babies in this little philosophical discussion in the womb had very limited experience when it comes to life. And because of that limited experience, both of them, especially Jamie, thought the idea more absurd than Kim. And a lot of people, the idea of God is much the same way. The idea of God seems absurd. And then the idea of relating and knowing this God is even more absurd. It's hard to fathom. Many folks find long-distance relationships very difficult. Having a relationship with someone you don't see often is quite a challenge. I find that with ourselves right now. Jessica is quite far away. I do FaceTime with her on the phone, or I have a picture of her that I can look at. But it's not Jessica here. So it is quite a challenge, and there's a longing. So this passage that we're looking at today in Exodus 32, 33, and 34 is such a seminal passage on knowing God and relating to God. The subject of God is the loftiest of all themes and the pinnacle of all pursuits. For some people, the idea of God is, as I said, absurd because he's not really perceived by their senses like a flower or another person. But as we learn who God is and how perceptible he is to us, I think we'll be both lifted up and humble all at the same time. Today we trace the journey that every person must take who wants to relate to the God of the universe. We'll examine five stages of this relationship sh- uh, shortly. So we're exploring this passage because this is the only passage of Scripture where God himself identifies himself, describes himself. He basically gives an autobiography of himself as we'll read in Exodus 34 a little later. And so the section deals with a couple of problems. Problem number one, which is a basic problem. How can a mortal relate to somebody who is immortal, transcendent, and invisible, like in our story? Second one, how do you have a personal relationship with a person you never see and who is far above you? And this also shows the desire that all people do have to have some sort of relationship with this transcendent, invisible God. And the proof of this is in the number of religions that exist around the world. Take a guess. How many religions are there around the world? Hundred? Hundreds? Anybody up for the thousands? Two thousand? I've got a two thousand. Three thousand? Four thousand? Four thousand three hundred religions. I do a meeting with the guys from India on a Friday... And just chatting to my friend Sunil, I said, Sunil, how many religions or how many gods are there in India? First of all, there are 84,000 different religions or little lakhs, they call it, in India. But there are 33 million gods in India. 33 million gods. So when a person comes to Jesus in India, it is such a big thing. It's amazing. Seeing their devotion to this God, they found the true God. I'm actually almost going back to front now with the talk. But there's such excitement because they've met the real God. And hopefully today this will excite you too as you come to know 
and begin to relate to this God. There's an experience to this uh, experience of coming to know this God. So let's look at the five stages to a relationship with God as revealed in Exodus 32. Now these stages are particular to a relationship with God, not to all relationships, but to a relationship with God. Any relationship with God is going to have to be unique because our God, or this great God, Yahweh himself, is unique. Let's see. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is all perfect. Can anybody relate to that? I can't. Not only that, God is, is the only non-contingent being in the universe, meaning God doesn't really need anyone else. He's self-sufficient. Therefore, the term is Yahweh El Shaddai. He's the all-sufficient one. Sufficient in himself, sufficient for all that is created. Every other being that exists is a contingent being, a dependent or interdependent being. We need God. We depend on him for everything, including the very breath that we breathe. The very breath that we breathe. And at this time, we come, even as Isaiah would say, we raise up a standard even against the virus. Because there's power in God's declaration that this is the air that we breathe. He can purify it for us. Even today, as we come to him, Lord, clean up the air. Clean up the atmosphere. You created all things good. Sin has brought this. And today we want to call on Jesus to do a great, our great God, to do a mighty work, even in our very day and age. So that fear is removed. Because everybody's heart is gripped in fear at present. And we want to call on our great God, who is the El Shaddai, our all-sufficient one, to step in for us. So every other being that exists as I said, is contingent, is in need of this great God. God himself is all-sufficient. So we all call upon and need to have a relationship with this God. We are imperfect. Imperfect, the non-contingent God, he is perfect in all that he does. So we're going to give the five stages right now. The first stage is that of rebellion. Now follow me here. Rebellion. This is where the story really starts in Exodus 32, verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down the mountain, the people gathered together Aaron and said to him, this is Moses' brother, he was a priest, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this man, Moses, we don't know what happened to him. He's gone. He's disappeared. It's 40 days later. Where is he? We're not sure he's going to come back again. And if you're, you know your Bibles, you know that this is the low point in Israel's history. So everything was going well before this. Okay? We're going to look at this chapter and I'm going to call it the ah uh-uh, not so good. But before this, it went good, right? They had this Passover feast. Their family, as gathered in the house, were saved because there was blood on the lintels. So far, so good. God comes and takes his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. So far, so good. God supplies them with manna in the desert. So far, so good. God called him to the mountain, the holy mountain, and you're reading chapter 19, and he's gathering the people because he wants to communicate with them. He wants to call Moses. He's got something for him, the commands he wants to give him. So far, so good. But Moses is gone now. Forty days later, uh-oh, Moses and God are together. They're busy conversing, and God says to Moses, God says to Moses uh-oh, something's wrong down there. You need to go and check on your 
your people. Verse 7 of chapter 32, if you have your Bibles. It says, go and check on your people. Something has gone amiss. Your people that you brought out of Egypt. Check that out. If you look at verse 11, Moses turns to God, and I'll share that a little later. He says, but Lord, it's your people. Have you seen that scenario play out somewhere? Eh? Parents? Eh? If it's the kid is good, it's my kid. If the kid is bad, it's your kid. Eh? Can you see this coming out here in the text? I thought that's so cool when I read that. Eh? Moses and God having this little tug of all there. And it's the uh-oh chapter. And if you know this, 40 days later, they decide, hang on, we've got to do something. And I call this the condition response. Why? Because they now tell Aaron, we need to build something that we can remind us of God. This is still the very beginning of Israel's national relationship with God. God is about making a covenant with him, an agreement with him. And right off the bat, the people of Israel start rebelling by wanting this calf to be made. Why a calf? What's the idea of a golden calf? Here's the answer, and I said that. It was a conditioned response. They lived in Egypt. They saw this happening all the time, the worship of false gods. And they, their heart moved away from even all that God has done, and they turned to what was happening there. They did not only long for the meats of Egypt. They did not only long for the, whatever was happening in Egypt that they found so great, but they even longed for the gods of Egypt. And it was a handful that led the nation astray at this time. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. They had been in Egypt for years, and one of the gods of Egypt was called Apis, Apis the bull. He symbolized power and virility. And there was a belief in Egypt that Apis called the renew of life. He was produced by a flash of lightning. And so they stand around the mountain in chapter 19. They see the smoke. They see the lightning. And they connect to this myth that lightning comes upon a cow, and this cow gives birth to this god, Apis the bull. So this is a conditioned environment. It's a pagan environment that they are bringing to the table. In Exodus 19, 16 to 9, it says, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in a fire. The smoke billowed up from the mountain. There was smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of a trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered. So they encountered God before. And yet something in their heart shifted that they wanted something that was tangible, something that they could touch. So why did they do this? Well, this brings up a, one of the problems we are trying to relate to God. God is invisible. So one of the problems that we have here, God is invisible, and they wanted something visible. Everything we apprehend is by what we see or touch or hear. God is invisible. It's hard to have a personal relationship with a person you can't see, you can't hear, you can't touch. Complete the sentence. I picture God as... It's an exercise for you. I picture God as... Just see what's happening in your mind right now. I picture God as... Anybody want to give me a shout out? What are you picturing God as? 
mighty, higher, fire, yes, personal, holy. What are we doing? What are we doing when you do that? We are limiting God just to what we've described right there. We're putting him into one pocket, basically. Because you can't make an image or find an image or get an image that can represent God. Why? God embodies so many attributes that not a single image could show. So you would do something of a fire. That's all you'll do. But hang on, God is more than that. Somebody said holy. So it's more than that. And so what we try and do in our imagination is bring God down to our level. So God embodies more than that. Every image by its own nature is limited. And God is unlimited. That's what I said. God is unlimited. We sang the song now. We sang, you are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Hey, we can go on and on and on and on. Times Google. Hey, we can do that. Why? Because God is unlimited. We only know him as much as he's revealed himself to us. And that is sufficient, I would say, because he's the sufficient one for what we need to know. A bull might represent power, but it won't represent compassion. It won't represent love. It won't represent forgiveness or patience or kindness or justice. This is why God, through the prophet Isaiah, said, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? You can't find an image that represents who he is. So it's limiting by its very nature. A quote by J.I. Packer. He says, metal images are the consequence of mental images. I would go far as to say that even uh, the consequence of mental images results not only in metal images, but in wooden images, in plastic images, in stone images. That's what will happen. Because that's what's around us. And that's what we can perceive and we want to shape everything in our perception to this great God that's unlimited. So the word image is related to this word which comes forth as imagination. How can we possibly imagine God adequately? We cannot. When we make an idol to represent God, we seek to bring God down to our level. Remember, sin was introduced into the world with the temptation you will be like God. Remember the serpent coming to Eve and saying you will be like God. God created man in his own image. When we make an idol, we attempt to create God in our image or according to our own ideas. Idolatry is wrong. And we see this even in this. They come to violate, by creating this image, they violate the second commandment. And Don shared on that in Exodus 20 last week. First commandment was to tell us whom we should worship. I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods beside me. The second commandment tells us how, to, how we should worship this God. You will make no graven images. What they've done now is violate the second commandment. And it's an indictment. And up to this very day, Israel, as much as the exodus is important to the people of Israel, so is this. It's always mentioned how they turn from this great God to worship an idol. And therefore, even in their practices, no idols are allowed so the first command forbids false gods. The second command forbids the false worship of the true God. It forbids the false worship of the true God. The image dishonored God. It obscured his glory. That's what the bull did. 
The bull apis obscured his glory. Secondly, images mislead people because a whole lot is ultimately left out. When we say that bull is just power, we're leaving out something of omnipresence. We're leaving something of his greatness, his unlimitedness, his all-knowing. We've just limited. So the people of Israel brought that great God that's done great miracles before them and brought him into a limited space. The second reason is when we make an image, we're making God into our image. Essentially, we're selecting something uh, like God and focusing only on that, leaving out the rest. So by nature of making something, we are basing it on our imaginations. Paul writes that we do not want to have vain imaginations. We do not want our imaginations to be captured and put to sleep. We want to have an imagination that is stirred by the holiness of God, by the word of truth, as we soak in it. So the first step in this relationship with God is rebellion. As I mentioned, everyone has sinned. Romans 3 verse 23, all have turned and gone their own way. It is the default mode of the human race. The second step and stage to a relation with God is repentance. In chapter 32, the same chapter down in verse 31, we are told Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin, and you have made and sorry, and they have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if we will forgive them, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. We go over to chapter 33. Now we look at verse 4. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments or his jewelry. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a, stiff, a stiff-necked people. You could, I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. What we have here is a public display of contrition, of sorrow, of penitence. Moses acts as the conscience for the people of Israel. And then he comes before the Lord and confesses sin on their behalf. See the Old Testament picture. There was always somebody that had to do go-between, the go-between. Oh, the beauty of the new covenant. Christ himself, he breaks that middle ground. We can have direct access to God. What a beautiful picture that we have in the new covenant. The old covenant needed a representative. They mourn. They're stripping off everything. It was an outward expression of an inward impression. It's sort of an equivalent of donning themselves with sackcloth and ashes. If you go back to looking at the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said that blessed are those that are poor in spirit. That's the beginning. And then the blessed are those that are mourning. Poor in spirit, we need God, and then we need to mourn because of our limitedness, of our weakness, of our rebellious nature. These two parts are part of repentance. Second Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, Godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. So there's a good sorrow, a godly sorrow. If it leads you to recognizing, I need to just point out that we do not just come realizing that we're rebellious, but we realize, we recognize that our hearts are rebellious, and therefore we come in poorness of spirit, we come mourning to God in the sign of repentance, and that change of life produces fantastic results. The Greek word metanoia means repentance. It means a right about turn. It means a change of mind. 
a thought, a thinking so powerful that it changes everyone's way of life. Both words mean thoroughly changing or turning from evilness to God's righteousness, from evil ways to God's righteous ways. Now, it's not a popular subject, something that we don't talk about often. It's not even preached about that often. But it's something that we need to confront. Why? Because it's a keynote in the New Testament. When John the Baptist arrived on the scene, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' first words were among the, uh, the people after coming out of the Jordan River. Repent and believe the gospel. The way and entry into the kingdom of God is through repentance. Remember the story in Luke chapter 18? There was this rich man and uh, the Pharisee, sorry, the tax collector and the Pharisee, and they're coming to pray. And Jesus tells the story that the Pharisee stands and he says, I thank my God that I'm not like this man next to me. This guy who is scum of the earth, this tax collector, was, they didn't have a high view in society. And they were employed by the Romans to, you know, getting the taxes from the, the Jews. And so he prayed with his haughtiness. He says, I'm not like him, I'm not like adulteress, I'm not like, uh, you know, all the, the sins there. And then you find the tax collector coming in, and he's just humble. He can't even lift his face up. He's just before God, Lord, be merciful to me. And what did the scripture say? Jesus went on to say that the tax collector went out justified. When we humble ourselves to the mighty hand of God, when we come recognizing our poor in spirit, when we come mourning because we have wronged God, he gives us his righteousness. The third stage to a relationship with God is the request stage, chapter 33. Verse 13, Moses is praying, Now therefore I pray that if you find grace in your sight, show me your way that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. I mentioned that earlier. Verse 7 it was, God says, Go down, your people are doing this hideous crime. Go and sort it out. And now he comes in verse 13, he says, God, this is your people. Consider your people. It's your nation. He said, my presence will go with you, Moses, individually, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, No, God, if your presence don't go with us, do not bring us out from here. We don't want to be like every other nation on the face of the earth. If we're going to be like every other nation, why should we go any further than this? For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except if you go with us? This is such a beautiful prayer. It says, if your grace, if you go with us, we are going to almost display the grace of God. We're going to display your grace. So let me just fill in a couple of blanks here. Because the people rebel, God said, I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel, a representative. I'm not going to go with you anymore. I'm going to send a representative and I'll send an angel. Moses was very disappointed at hearing this news. He goes to God in prayer and talked to him privately saying, look, I don't want less of you. I want more of you. We want more of you. As a church, I think that should be our cry. We want more of God, not less of him. And then he finally says, show me your glory. Show me your glory. That's his request. I want to see your glory. What does that mean? The Hebrew word kavod is a word that literally means your weightedness or your weightiness. It refers to a person's weighty reputation or honored position. 
Moses saw what God has just done. Brought in, bringing them through the Red Sea. Right? Bringing them into the land. Going, as we're on their way to the promised land. And now he said, Lord, I want more of you. He's seen God's great acts before him. So one translation put it this way. Show me your own self. In other words, Moses is praying, I want to see a full disclosure of your glorious presence. Sounds familiar. You remember Philip? In the New Testament, he said, Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Well, God goes to, on to tell him in verse 20 that you can't see me. If you can't see, if you see me, you won't live. Mortal man cannot see me in the fullness of glory. You all know the Zappa story, so I wanted to bring the Zappa out. It's like this. So you see, yes, God, well, I'm in limited form right now, so this is just a representative of uh, the severity of this thing, what it can do. So Moses, if he'd seen God, this would happen. Oh, it's not working. Okay, so. Right. It's not working. There we go. You'll get zapped. Okay. All right? Yeah, yeah. There we go. I like the, that's a mozzie zapper. And it looks really much like this, because Moses said, God says, you can't see me and live. You'll be zapped. The question here is, why did Moses ask for this? Why did he say, show me your glory? I want more than what I've experienced. Now, I remember when I first read this, you see, and I shared with you what they've experienced. God led them. He met God in the burning bush. Okay? He saw God come and talk to him in the burning bush. He saw how God dealt with the plagues on the Egyptians. He saw a manna fell from the sky. He saw how God opened the Red Sea. And you and I would say, Moses, that's enough. I mean, why? what more do you want? You've seen it all. And he says, no, I want more. The picture of this is a God hunger. It's a God hunger that God has placed within all of us. We want more of him. We all have a God hunger. We all have a hunger for God. No matter how spiritually acknowledgeable we are, we all long and want more and more of him. Just like I shared with you a little story. If you have a picture of a loved one and they're not close by, guess what? Even though you see that picture, even though you uh, talk to them on FaceTime and you see this picture. So I have a picture of Jessica in our house. So this is the pic. And so I see this on the wall. But that's all it is. It's a picture of her. All right? I talk to her on my phone and I say, hello, how are you? But I'm not there. I'm not close to her. The longing to see her again, the longing just to hold her hand, the longing just to laugh with her inner presence is what's being stirred within me. What this picture does, it stirs that. It's actually more inviting. It actually accentuates the, the, the absence of my child. So Moses, in all that he's experiencing, he says, I'm not satisfied unless I have more of you. This longing, this God hunger that's within us. Psalm 17 verse 15 says, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I wake in your likeness. Only when we actually see God's, God face to face will we be satisfied. No, it's not enough. He says, I want more of you. I long to see you. I want to see more of your handiwork. A quote by Tim Stafford, who wrote a book called Knowing the Face of God. He writes, I believe this longing can only be fulfilled when our eyes are open on the loving and glorious face of God. Such will someday be our joy, but not yet. The Bible does not hint that our intimacy with God can be satisfied, satisfied through prayer or through ecstatic worship experiences, or through the Bible. 
if Moses could not get what he wanted, then we should not be surprised at our own sense of incompleteness. Our longing is a mark of God's touch. The longing that we want more of him is a longing or mark of his touch. We long to know him completely because we have come to know him in part. Now this takes us to our next stage which in a relation with God, which is revelation. Moses experienced the revelation of God. Without revelation, we end up with imagination. Look at verse 33, verse 19. Right after he says, please show me your glory, then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now listen to this. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'm going to pass by you. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to speak something. I'm going to declare something. I'm going to proclaim something. So we go to chapter 34, verse 5. It's the ninefold verbal description of God himself. As I mentioned early on, this is such a seminal passage of Scripture. And what he does, yeah, the Lord descended in a cloud, stood with him, and there proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness, truth, keeping mercy to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. Isn't that wonderful? Nine description of, nine full description of who this God is. Show me your glory. What did he get? He got God's word. What did he get? Words. Yeah, wonderful words. In fact, this ninefold verbal description by God of who he is and what he does. God basically listed some of the attributes of himself. Hey, I'm going to tell you who I am, Moses. I'm going to tell you what I'm like. I'm going to give you my autobiography. And that's all you need. Oh, what the longing has created. We want just more of this, more of his word. I love the little quote by uh, Terry Virgo. He says, prayer isn't whistling in the dark. It is responding to God himself and what he has promised. So the more scripture-soaked you and I are, the more meaningful our prayers will be. It will be conversational, longing for intimacy, not just having a wish list answered. The wish list is my little in italics that comes from me. Yeah, we just don't want a wish list. We want intimacy. We want, just like the picture of Jessica, I just don't want to chat. I want intimacy with her. I want to connect with her. Second Peter 1 says, We all have that, that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue. So when God does this, he gives us a revelation of himself, verbal revelation. This forces us to live by faith. Again, we live by faith and not by sight. That's going to have to be enough for us right now. doesn't mean we're not going to see him face to face. It's not that we're going to see his glory, but for now, that is enough. For now, that is sufficient. And it takes us to the final stage in our relationship with God, and that is our response. Chapter 8, in verse 8 of chapter 34, after God tells him these words, so Moses made haste, that is, he hurried, bowed his head toward the earth, and worshipped God. Moses didn't say, excuse me, God, I didn't come here for a Bible study. I didn't come for a lesson on, on who you are. I came for more of that, more of the what? God says, I'm giving you my word. I didn't come for you to just give me a whole lot of your attributes. I want more, and more, more excitement and more experiences. He says, I'm going to give you my word. Now listen, to worship when you don't get what you want is true worship. 
To worship when you don't get what you want is true worship. Remember some of the stories even of Job where he says, even though I cannot see him, don't see the movements, what he's doing behind the scenes, yet I will trust him. That is worship. We trust God regardless of what the Israelites were doing. They wanted something finite. They wanted something that they could touch. And yet our God cannot be limited to apis the bull. He's far greater than that. And he's revealed this to Moses. I'm much bigger than this. And Moses, I want more of that. So you only if you worship when you feel blessed, if you only worship when you feel up, when you only feel worship when everything is going good, something is wrong. It's when you can worship even in the dark times. It's like when you wake up very early in the morning, it's still dark, and I open the window, and I can hear the birds chirping. Now there's just been rain, and it's still dark. What does the bird know that I don't know? Hey? There's something excited about them. Hey? That's their natural uh, uh, disposition to, to whistle. Hey? To chirp. What we do is when we chirp is we chirp what we know of this great God, our experience of Him. And Moses knew that. God isn't saying no. He's just saying not yet to Moses. It's like you remember Christmas is going to come on the 23rd and some of the children will run into the Christmas tree and they want to open up a present. We say, no, don't do that. Don't go there yet. Hey? What are we saying? No, no, just wait. Two more days and you'll have it. To us, we're all longing, says Paul. In this limited space, he says, we are longing for the great revelation of the coming of the Lord. This is also leaning into that. Hey, we come into relationship with this God, but that's not all that there is. There's something much more. We're looking forward to something greater even the return of the Lord. So three takeaways that I want to just leave with you um, <clears throat> as we go. Number one, longing is part of loving. Longing for more of God is part of loving God is a reward of those who diligently seek him. The Bible says, God is not saying no. He just says, wait. Just not yet. Just give me some time. I will make something happen. Secondly, worship is better than wondering. Worship is better than wondering. Sometimes we wonder why God isn't more dramatic. His word is going to have to be enough for now. Full satisfaction will come when we face him face to face. John 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the same was in the beginning with God. So the Word is so important. He himself is the Word. Jesus himself. We want more of Jesus. When we say we want more of the Word, we want more of Jesus. We want to soak ourselves in this Word so that we get to know this Jesus be formed and shaped by him. And the third takeaway is, and then invisible does not mean unavailable. I can't see God, so I want to see God more. Show me your glory, was Moses' words. Invisible does not mean unavailable. The most important thing is not that you see God. The most important thing is that God sees you and I. Psalm 139, David said, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You answer that, nowhere. Just like my opening illustration, we are in mum and mum is everywhere. You never stop working, even when I can't see you, says the song. You never stop working. You're always busy. I conclude with a story. It was about a, a, a lion tamer. Goes into the circus arena. He's got the lions coming into the cage, so it's all caged up. And then he pauses there and he says to himself, well, hang on, we're going to do the show. He's whipping the, uh, slapping the whip on the ground. 
and the lions are jumping onto their little stands, and suddenly the lights are on the scene. Okay, so see the bright lights, and suddenly the lights go out, and it's all dark. And the lion tamer is in the cage with the lions. Now you know what happens next. The lions can see him, but he can't see the lion. Why? Because they feel lions. They can see in the dark. That is very much a picture I want to say. When we find us in the darkest of spaces, because God is with us, he can see us. He never leaves us. will never forsake us. And even the people of Israel felt that even a momentary temporary departure meant they were in the darkness, but God could see them. You could say to Moses, go down there. Go and sort out the people. Our God is with us even in this time, in this darkest space where we find ourselves, whether it's, I don't know your situation, but I want to tell you and give you the reassurance that God is with you. If you have a relationship with this God, you've come to him and he says, listen, Lord, I need you today. I come because I am poor in spirit. I can't do this on my own. I've also tried to create some sort of God to take your place. Yes, I even created a little idol in my mind. I may not have sculpted it. I may not have taken some clay and molded it, but I've created a God in my mind that is so limited to the fullness of what you are in your word. May your word wash over me today afresh. That's my prayer, that we would get to know him more intimately and walk with him in more closeness from this day forward.